Let's everyone introduce themselves and tell where they're from. No, not where they're from, where they are. So I'm Kim and I'm uh, in Austin. Yeah, I'm Mehdi Sharifian, I'm in Austin. And Trouty? I'm Trouty and I'm in Austin. And Emily? I'm Emily and I'm in San Antonio. And Lori? I'm Lori and I'm here in Austin. And Daniel? I am Daniel, I'm in Austin. And Milan? I am Milan and I'm in Mexico City. And Lynn? I'm Lynn and I'm in Wimberley, which is just outside of Austin. Okay. And uh, so what we've been doing in the past with books is we read until eight, approximately eight o'clock when we get to a good stopping point and then we write or meditate or I think there's something else that's walk. possible. Walk. Or what? Walking meditation. Oh, walking. What? Yes, walking. <laughs> Kin hen. And then we, after for 10 minutes, and then we <coughs> discuss whatever uh, went on. And I have the book as a PDF. There's no Kindle. It also, in Amazon has a lot of used copies that are two and a half dollars plus shipping. So um, you might want to get a book. Um, what I'll do is I'll try to move the page because it's, it's like a different than a Kindle um, at the end of each paragraph. And also it's been helpful that at, don't just come right on reading the next paragraph, but we do a pause. And that's really been helpful. Um, oh, and the other thing I was thinking of is there's no dumb questions. If you don't understand something, it's likely others also don't understand it. And sometimes the dumbest questions are the most interesting. Like the best question ever asked to me teaching photography was, how do you know when to press the button? And I, I have no idea how to answer that. The other one, when I was getting into like more esoteric things, they said, so how do I open the back of my camera to put the film in? So there's those kind of questions too that are so important, but um, okay. So I will share. Okay. To move it first. And the book is called Light Inside the Dark by John Tarrant. And we'll read in alphabetical order. Uh, so alphabetically, there's uh, Emily and Kim and Lynn and Mady and Malen and then Trouty. You forgot Daniel and me. And okay, 
but I've not seen you guys on my uh, limited thing now. Uh, so let, let me do it again. Daniel, Emily, Kim, uh, Lori, Lynn, Mady, Malen, Trouty. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> and we normally read the uh, the foreword or the introduction. This one I think has a foreword that seems good too. And sorry about the background color. In the meantime, I wanted to mention that there is a trick to actually convert PDF to a Kindle book. You just have to find an email address to which you have to send your um, PDF file. And you should be able to find this in your Kindle settings. Oh, very good. I will do that then. Yeah, there are online, there are instructions how to do that, like how okay. to convert PDF to Kindle book. Okay. Oh. Oh, that's great. Very good. <clears throat> uh, so, Daniel. Okay. This book has been a 10 years work. During that time, I dreamed it was a large fish, a trans-Pacific yacht, a Finnish a fishing boat on a hot rodded destroyer. Fish just appear or don't appear, I suppose, and are independent of us. But to the extent that this book is a vessel and a made thing, it has been built by many hands, the ideas, labor, and love of many friends. <clears throat> by the way, um, I don't know if everyone knows what a hot rod is. But um, Google it if you don't. It's a very cool little culture. I used to have a roommate who was a hot rodder. So. Is it um, just a, a car that's been fixed up to go very fast? Or is there more to it? The, the, there's a cool graphic history to it, too. Oh, so. I didn't. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, I didn't um, know that. Yeah. Stephen, Yeah. Um, Stephen Mitchell, my old Dharma brother, supported the work from the beginning with friendship, advice, and money. Michael Katz one told, once told me that being too lazy to write his own books, he tries to get his friends to write them for him. Along with Stephen, he suggested I write this one and has been a good friend. Hugh Van Dusen has been most gracious and helpful. Two first-rate writers have touched each page. I think it's me. Yeah. It is obvious from its first pages, its first sentences, that the light inside the dark is a profoundly <coughs> original and important book. You can feel the quality of John Terrence's thinking in his finely wrought verbal intelligence, which is skeptical of abstractions and works close to the bone. 
with a prose rich in the things of the world and an insight honed by 25 years of intensive Zen training, Tarrant has created not so much a synthesis as a brilliant reimagining of the great inner traditions of East and West. He maps the landscape of the inner life and takes us on a journey through it so that we can feel its terrain under our feet, gaze into its abysses, and lie down under the stars. This is a beautiful, passionate, meticulously forthright book. It is not merely acquainted with the night, but intimate with it, modest, yet rooted in essential wisdom, personal, yet informed by the strength of what is beyond personality. The <clears throat> usual categories of psychology seem irrelevant here. At this depth, psychology itself is the reverse side of theology and mysticism is as matter of fact as the glass of orange juice on your breakfast table. Here, originality is largely a question of returning to origins, knowing the place we all begin from. Tarrant is not the first writer to distinguish between soul and spirit, two words that are vaguely synonymous both in the ancient languages and in ordinary usage. But he has broadened and clarified this distinction, and in doing so, he has given us new words, even more important, at a time when it is fashionable to favor soul over spirit, he has treated both sides of the dichotomy with his respectful attention, an attention so persevering that it becomes a kind of love. This impartiality allows him to penetrate deeply into the split that any dichotomy creates. We crave not only what the soul craves, depth, darkness, embodiment, the poetry and turmoil of this world, any element that allows us to suffer and mature, but also the cravings of the spirit for light, purity, birth and deathlessness, the dazzle of true insight, the unshakable knowledge of our primal identity. We can't go deep unless we are willing to go high, since the way up and the way down are one and the same. I think it's my turn. <clears throat> Nor can we speak of a spirit and soul in a faithful way if we take the words too seriously. Ultimately, they are just manner of speaking, as Tarrant knows very well. One of the delicious ironies of this book is that he is a teacher of Buddhism which begins from the fundamental perception that there is no such thing as soul or spirit of self. There is no such thing as soul or spirit of self. No such thing, question. But this no thing, thing beams at us and demands or attention like the grin, grin without the car. Grin or without, without a cat. cat. Without the cat, I'm sorry. Right <clears throat> grin without the cat uh, that becomes at Alice from another giver of non-directions. 
The journey that Tarrant takes us on leads to enlightenment and beyond enlightenment. That journey that Tarrant takes us on leads to enlightenment and beyond enlightenment. On this journey, going means letting go. It's not all that hard to get enlightened. What is difficult is to keep giving up our senses of the world so that the world can come to us on its own terms with its vast, pitless, loving intelligence. At the end of the journey, we return to the simplest thing with an Im immense recognition and gratitude, a recognition and gratitude that I hope you will feel as you arrive at the last pages of this book, Stephen Mitchell. It's nice, isn't it? What is difficult is to keep giving up our sense of the world so that the world can come to us on its own terms, which is what we talk about as things as they are. Isn't it? Yeah. Is it trouty now? I was just wondering. Um, <clears throat> I'm looking at the book, but I think we, we skipped two pages somewhere. <clears throat> it doesn't matter, but. <laughs> no, well, that we don't want to skip pages, but what did we skip? I think we, well, you know, I, I was following the first page on the foreword, and it looks like that we may have skipped. Uh, we read this that ended with Stephen Mitchell. Yeah, right. in, in the acknowledgement section, we skipped. We started on the first page and then we did not read 10 and 11. But I mean, it was on the screen, but I, I was confused where I was in my book. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I'm reading what is on the screen, right? <clears throat> <laughs> okay. In invitation to the journey. Yeah. In the voyage. Yeah. Yes. Somebody said something. Yes, that's it. Okay. How lovely! Through the torn paper screen, the Milky Way. Isa. When we were children, our days were full of wonder. The world unfolded itself and ourselves at the same time. In such an eternal afternoon, the grass hums, the ball flies into the blue, and the girl sings the skipping road song. Cinderella, dressed in yellow, went upstairs to kiss a fella and made a mistake and kissed the snake. <laughs> How many doctors did it take? Hmm. Imagining, but that's in the middle of the sentence. I know, but uh, let's see what happens when we go from four 
to five. What does your book say, Charlie? Yeah, why don't you read the book for well, our I, Because I, I never know where I, where I am. Okay, the Cinder, okay, it takes, okay. Yeah, it says imagining too. There isn't, yeah, there is not a beginning of the sentence. Same thing. Okay, okay. Okay, yeah, number four. Imagining the time when she will be bitten by a life that is still being dreamed and has not yet arrived, though it is clear to her, to her father watching that life is here for her now, utterly complete. Beneath or inside the life we lead every day is another life. This unseen life runs like a river beneath a city, beneath work, family, ambition, beneath our pleasures and griefs. There is another world, says Paul Eliard. And it is inside this one. Okay, Daniel. In the halter, sculptor, in the rush to get an education, to make a career, to make a family, to find material success, to hurry, to do, to survive. This interior life is often subjudged or paved over. The life that in the child is something vivid and whole goes further inward in the adult, where it usually slumbers until it is called forth. But this life beneath or within our ordinary life is irresponsible, unstoppable. No, irrepressible. Unstoppable. It comes up in loveliness like jenquils out of fallen snow. It rises in supplication like hands out of granting in a pavement in India and it bursts upward through our chests as the fountain of shock that is our reaction to evil news. It appears in dreams, bravery, memories of childhood, in what we find beautiful and in what we find ugly as a gorgeous and appears too when we fall in love, when we fall ill, when we are lost on dark paths. It touches our pleasures with melancholy and intermittently pierces our desperation with joy. I have always loved to think of the old navigators, the small bands moving to a new continent over land bridges made by the ice age, the Polynesian canoe masters sailing into the vastness with a coconut shell half filled with water, observation holes drilled into it near the rim. James Cook, who rose through the ranks to command the ship Endeavor, carrying Joseph Banks to botanize through these same Pacific islands, and my own ancestors transported in chains to the desolation of Botany Bay.
think it's Kim. Whether or not our travels may eventually extend to the stars and those brave hard-pressed voyages be repeated in some new form, our frontier now is the inner life. Now, I really like that, how he keeps pointing <laughs> inside as our world. In this book, two great lineages of inward exploration are brought together. The first is the Asian tradition with its long devotion to the arts of attention and to a spiritual understanding based on inquiry and experience rather than dogma. The second is the Western method of work with the soul with exploring <coughs> the life of feeling, thought, and the stories and legends that the soul likes to tell. Stories in which we extend our destiny through pain and joy to find out what happens next. The in, inward voyage and the outer both have an historic, an heroic aspect. Outer voyages make new connections by which human beings achieve many ends, adventure, trade, conquest, and love. The inner voyage always makes new connections. It plunges us into an initiatory space the way young boys were once thrust into the forecastle of a sailing ship. Then as the world we have known disappears, we are rocked and whirled around until the ship anchors once more in a harbor. We step ashore in a land that is not externally new, but that our eyes being changed, see in its primal, primal, primal freshness. The interior voyage overcomes loneliness by offering us a place in the universe where we can know ourselves in the midst of all changes. He's kind of like a little kid, isn't he, with his imagination? Yeah. I really like him. Mm -hmm. that, last, that last sentence reminded me of a Mary Oliver poem. Um, anyway, what's it called? Wild geese. Oh, huh? yeah. Um, <clears throat> if, if we respect the inner life, we find that it is also possible to reverse the whole relationship between inner and outer, beneath and above, and make the inner life come first as a garden that is tended for the tending's own sake. to cultivate, to know, to love. This vast inscape is the only way to be free in any circumstances, the only way to mend the poverty of wasted years. We explore the interior realm because it is what we humans are for. Consciousness, the marvelous voyage. Okay. I think it's my turn. <clears throat> um, much, much of the journey is about the ways we work with our attention because attention gives us more life. It expands the, reg expands the register, bringing us to notice more 
of the vividness and consolation of our dark lives so that we can exist in our true range and not go around missing things as if we know countries only from their airports and hotels. Attention is the most basic form of love. Through it, we bless and are blessed. When we attend to the interior life, we also connect with what surrounds us. The espresso machine hissing, comma, skipping rope with its two red handles in the line and the rope uh, curling lazily out and back. The green points on the sword, sword drops, snowdrops, I'm sorry. The green points on the snowdrops nodding over the cold ground. What was matter and merely intimate becomes family. Inanimate, I think. Was matter and merely inanimate, okay. Became, becomes family and we come out the children walking walking, walking home, at wanting for love to be seen for who we are, for a new red car, in wanting to find and be taken into this mysterious depth in things. And it is this inner connection that resolves the problem of who we are and makes us at home in the world for the inner life sweetness, the uh, humblest thing. It opens for us the magic in ordinary life. <laughs> this guy's style is very poetic. <laughs> and I realize I asked the wrong question about your name and where are you? Because you know, <laughs> he's so internal that uh, that's the real question, isn't it? Not whether you're in San Antonio or Wimberley or Austin, but where are you? The method of the book. Some books are maps that tell you where you can go. This book attempts, attempts inside to give you some of the taste, excitement, and sense of being subjected to extremes that are typical of the interior journey. The method of the book is to connect things that are usually far apart, allowing them to their natural difference in tension and so to arrive at balance by amplitude rather by than rather than by fasting it tries to give the feel <clears throat> of the, voyage the way a novel does 
transforming the journey through our dangerous, beautiful life by bringing an ever-deepening attention to it. Is it me again? Yes. Thank you. There is blood as well as happiness in these pages. We look into the darkness, darkest moments, death, loss, and ignorance in order to find evidence for the presence of the spirit and the soul. For if the spirit is real, and if the soul is real, they must console us in the thickest night. They must be found precisely there where they seem most absent. In my life as a teacher of Zen and as a psychotherapist, people have told me their stories, holding nothing back. Using those tales so generously given, I have mapped out the journey. From the first, I found that I could not stand at a distance from the material either. When night came over the journey, I might, would myself grow dark and fragmented. And then the journey turned upwards to brightness, I too would become enlightened in that moment. I hope you will recognize your own life here as well, and that you will find yourself in conversational conversation Con and, and you will find yourself in conversation with the many voices in the book i imagine too that the voices of your own journey will appear in you reciting the ways they are similar to and the ways they are different from the voices i have recorded here in the middle of such a chorus, we can sometimes see the way the personal is nested within a relentless universal process. And we can see also how once we give ourselves over to it fully, we are born, born up by the journey itself. Sometimes this book asks you to jump from voice to voice and from image to image, mirroring the imaginative act that life itself asks, us, asks of us. When pressing us hard, it reveals an underlying order, the more authentic because composed of broken, this desperate pieces, disparate pieces. There is the voice of the shaman calling the ancestors into the community of the living. The voice of the initiating elder bringing purifying ordeals. The voice of the Buddhist meditator whose laboratory is the interior life, the voice of the dreamer heading into the labyrinth, and the voice of the psychotherapist holding the other end of the thread of that dream. The voice of the 19th century essayist who quotes classics on mundane occasions in order to honor them 
the voice of the lover, the voice of the mother who has lost her child, the voice of the man dying of AIDS, the voice of the executive making a deal, the voice of the ordinary person whose only desire is to flow smoothly through life, the voice of the scientist asking, what really happens? And the voice of the child asking, what comes next? So when I first heard that um, the laboratory is the internal life, I thought, well, what about the world? But maybe, maybe what he's inferring is that the world exists internally because we construct it. Is that how you guys see it? Is he excluding a lot of stuff or is that all there is, is our interior life? No, I think the Buddhist meditator plays in the laboratory. And that laboratory tends not to be, you know, an actual lab with Bunsen burners and everything. It's, it's playing within exploring I, the inner my my take of this you know book at this to this point is that he's giving a priority to the emotions and inner world versus the outer and thinking and logic knowledge there is two distinctions you know that i have been uh, you know, familiar with or trained or <laughs> that the primacy still is the emotion. And, but it's so fast. That knowledge is so fast as far as the central nervous system. And then immediately follows by the uh, cognitive. Mm -hmm. So that combination and then becomes a philosophical conclusion, which is the third type of the knowledge. This is the way I look at the reality of, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <clears throat> Who's reading now? I think it's you, Kim. Voices of pain and voices of delight, dark material and bright. All are useful for the journey. At the same time, there is a central core. Each voice sings its note of eternity. There are spirit books that talk about spirit and soul books that talk about soul. In this book, I've tried to hold these two great archetypes in conversation with each other, <coughs> letting them murmur tenderly to each other and groan in pain, letting them shout out in joy for what is found and wail for what is lost and cannot be recovered. Underline all the voices, I hope you will hear a unifying consciousness telling the old story of going out and coming home as if by firelight in a cave so that the children listening now with upturned faces will know when their turn comes that others have gone before and that they are not alone.
the wilderness inside and the creatures to be found there. How do you pronounce this word, primeval? Primeval? Primeval. Primeval, of course. Okay, into the primeval place. The interior life is a place of the wild, uncivilized and unpredictable, giving us fevers, symptoms, and moments of impossible beauty. Yet within the appearances of chaos are both a richness and a deep level of orderliness. Like a national park, the interior world doesn't do anything. It is the treasure house of life. It can't be strip-mined for our conscious purposes. The only request it makes of us is that we love it, and in return, it responds to our attention. To learn to attend well is to discover our place in the natural order. It brings an element of consistency and harmony to our lives and gives us a story about who we are. To learn to attend is a beginning. To learn to attend more and more deeply is the path itself. For Aboriginal people, a wilderness is not something alien, but a kind of blessed garden. As our attention deepens, we too come to harmonize existence, learn to see the thin vine that has a tuber underneath, or to follow the direction of the birds at sunset to a waterhole. Gradually, we change. Our listening becomes more acute. We hear background as well as foreground noises, and we are no longer so surprised by the animals, the fears and longings of our inner life, and do not complain that someone else has caused their rough ways. When our attention is offered freely, the inner life in return becomes a friend to comfort and sustain us. Gradually, through our offered attention, we connect with the source out of which we came. We become Aboriginal ourselves, discovering how much we love our own communities. I think it's mine there. <clears throat> the transparency of the spirit. Sometimes we want to live inside the source itself and bend toward it like heli heliotrope to changing light. To take this path, this whole direction is to face toward spirit. We take up such a way for many reasons, for health, to live in goodness, to answer our great questions, but there is an element of unreason too, for we fall in love with spirit. Spirit is the center of life, the light out of which we are born with eyes still reflecting the vastness and the light toward which our eyes turn when our breath goes out and does not come in again. The great inner 
traditions from Paleolithic shamanism to monastic Christianity have brought us many disciplines to cultivate the wilder, wilderness inside. And no, the, no, no, that's the title of the chapter. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. That's, Here, you want to? To cultivate, yeah. To cultivate our link with, with spirit. Such work involves meditation, prayer, and the slow, delicious process of letting go. Everything we thought important drops away when the blaze and the stillness at the center fills with fills the view. Meditation, the primary method of spiritual inquiry, 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 yeah, inquiry, thank you, spiritual inquiry, taking various forms in different traditions. Meditation plunges us into the source and saturates us with its waters, answering in a certain fashion, our curiosity about what is that we are. When we turn towards spirit, it compels us to its mode in which eternity is everlasting, present without our, within our lives, making the smallest moment vibrant and full of color. Our underlying doubts about existence soften and a constructing attachment to the narrow received aspects of consciousness is weakened. The transparency of the world amazes us. At each moment, we are surprised anew by the clarity of what we see, our undeniable connection to the source. We have some home at last, no longer alone on the earth. I don't know about you guys, but this is so neat for me to read because I'm caught now in in like three or four situations about other people, like someone being very sick and someone else being a little sick and someone else being very sick. And, you know, it's all external stuff, but what I'm not going to is the internal stuff that's happening because of that. So I, I've kind of like outside of myself and just thinking I'm outside of myself at least. So, does this make sense to you guys? That he's really, what he's pointing at is, is something that's so easy to forget. This world, the inner world. I, I think it's absolutely important emphasizing, you know, the other side of knowledge and it is confirming my my way of looking and analyzing and understanding the uh, the reality you know what we have in the newspapers and on tv right now and are always are all external stuff absolutely and, and we think that when we're watching it that what we're seeing is external but it's really isn't 
in terms of our reactions. Especially when it is filled with neg negative aspects of the reality. And that's the propaganda and the news. And we forget that this is a little bit tilted towards negativity and it has to be corrected within us, which, you know, if we don't know that that is the case, then we will totally be misled. I, I, I always have that type of a... You mean in terms of that's our view of the world? We can easily... The influence, yeah. the influence of each, you know, and the view of the world, yes. If you are listening and you're getting more negative, and then there is a, some other side that is, you know, for some whatever reason, you know, which is stupid to me, it's not right. Filling the media with all negative, more negative than positive. At least you can that can be corrected or should be. And I do it in my own mind. Okay, spirit. Spirit is given, and I don't know what really spirit is. <laughs> <laughs> Would, this, would, would, would spirit and soul make any sense in terms of ancient understanding in your world, Shrouti? No, I don't see any two things when I look inside or when I'm inside, oh, no. Okay. Spirit is given. It is not produced by our attention. It is uncovered, showing us our link from the beginning with all of life, with frogs and trees and stones. And it is not more fond of us than it is of frogs, trees and stones. Bearing us past the deepest pains we suffer, past grief, war and death, it underlies all things. Spirit's path is real, heroic, and enormously seductive. And its revelation is always the same in an experience of enlightenment or awakening. The veils that obscure our view are lifted and our oneness with God and the universe is revealed. The wilderness is clearly recognized as a garden and is our original home. To spirit, morality is a natural thing. Like a hill, it is just there. The good and the bad are clear, but unexamined. Similarly, for spirit, each moment is a fragment of eternity. Just this is the ancient treasure of consciousness. And the portion of earth and time we inhabit now is the actuality of the everlasting fire. Yeah, through those paragraphs, I was really looking for a definition of a spirit. Did you find it? No. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm defining this more like uh, he's like inner, our inner voice. But I'm interested more in things that we can't uh, lately and things that are impossible to define. And I started to try to define Zen, and then I decided it's best not to. 
but maybe spirit is like that just to talk around it of the experience of it but not to really but we'll see maybe he does it through attentiveness to spirit we enter a place of reverence of such a deep witnessing of life that it is a kind of illumination we see that woman river wind and star are all equal and that death and life are both dreamlike processes <laughs> themselves part of a greater unchangingness we are impressed by those discoveries which have a natural dazzle to them we are happy we feel we have something that we can rely on just to have seen this world as it is seems enough for a lifetime even were we to die the same evening we have seen eternity and it is enough the ex the experience of spirit is natural and most people have had a taste of it still to know its consistent presence in our life requires a discipline that seems severe at first this discipline is the daily work of meditation and prayer a steady practice evokes the feeling and imagery of winter the cold that works on the bare naked boughs preparing them for spring then after we have plodded and endured there is something arbitrary and astonishing about the eruption of spirit into awareness nothing prepares us for the sudden grace of the plum blossoms and if the spirit's road has its true magic it also has its dark unregarded losses for spirit is only a portion it does not define either the whole journey or the whole of the republic in buddhist thought spirit might be referred to as the pure body of the buddha there you go daniel <coughs> Now you know exactly what it is. Or else <laughs> as a realm of fast emptiness where everything is possible because there is no content. The earth and our life upon it are founded on a mystery that is clearly seen and shines in all directions. This dimension of spirit <coughs> is the most wonderful thing there is. And yet alone, it is strangely helpless. For those who have the book, how much more is on this chapter? Uh, <clears throat> just a moment. Um, two more paragraphs, and then, oh, it, is, then it is God's feet. Okay, so let's read that before we take our 10-minute... <laughs> Part of spirit's weakness is that it is so clear about its goals and so reckless and headlong in their pursuit. Mr. Bugatti, the founder of the automobile company that bore his name, was asked why his racing cars had poor brakes. 
He was <laughs> I make them to go, not stop. And this is very like the spirit's point of view. Thoroughgoing, full of absolutes. Adept at transcendence, spirit gives us the foundation for understanding reality, but is of little help with the day-to-day arts of relishing life. As in those Renaissance paintings that show just the feet of Jesus as he disappears out of the, out of the top of the picture, spirit wants only to ascend to be pure, always getting by with less, with less so that it can encompass more. Spirit forgets to feed the kids or hold a job. It lacks poetry, melancholy, and everything voluptuous. Um, these it leaves to others as if it needed servants to do its living for it. That's sure a different idea of spirit than I have, that it lacks, <laughs> how about, that it lacks poetry, melancholy, and everything voluptuous. <laughs> Does that strike anyone else as strange? Yes. <laughs> okay. So uh, we'll take 10 minutes till 8.13. <laughs> And so write, sit, walk, stand. So I just got a message from Peg because I had promised that Peg would come. And she said, this is her contribution. I am so sorry about tonight. We had a tornado, sorry for laughing. We had a tornado warning and I have had to shelter in my neighbor's basement. You should write back, that's no excuse. Where does she live? Uh, Chicago. Mm. Oh, so I will stop share. And and we're at God's um, header, what was it, God's? Feet. Feet. I'm gonna write that down. Who would like to share? Am I going to have to share? Okay, I will share. So there's the drawing. Oops, I have to have to uh, unblur. Here's the drawing, and that's the whole world inside of my head. I've been caught in the external world lately, forgetting the I and believing it is all out there rather than in here. How did I not see that the heaviness of what I was feeling was not more than my reactions? Where I am is not defined by longitude or latitude and latitude, but by feelings and emotions. <clears throat> the events of my life are just the fodder. The real business is what I make of it all. So. There. Hmm. I really love this book. 
Whose face is in the middle there, Kim? It's mine. I see. Doesn't it look like me? Well, it is nice because it's sort of uh, whimsical and smiling. I wanted it so big that I could put everything inside. I see. Oh, that's a nice idea. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, any, can I go for a comment? Uh, absolutely. Okay. I. <clears throat> it's a very poetic. It's beautiful, beautifully written. I think, from my perspective, the emphasis is more in the on the inner side, and the, our, you know knowledge of inside and then perhaps a spirit or um, you know that that side and you know considering that you know we humans we have evolved into you know a being that you know has a very well-grown frontal lobe My, our, our understanding is that you know and some of the apes you know, greater, you know, generation of apes. And then the inhuman being, 35% of the whole brain is the frontal lobe, is in the front. And that has given us capacity of being able to look at ourselves. And that is what is happening. And without our perhaps knowing it, we can see, look at ourselves are different selves that Flint, you know, says these are all reflections of the reality and they are temporary and they change and all of that. And I understand it totally and I agree with it. But then the point is that there has been studies done that if we don't distance ourselves or our, our frontal lobe or our understanding from whatever is the reality, the distance makes it more uh, closer to the reality. Otherwise, we will be immersed into the uh, one side versus the other side. So that distance, which you know, I have realized, and you know, I have studied it, which not me. I mean, I have studied the book, which is in neuropsychiatrist Ian McGilchrist from London, you know, England. And he made a significant you know, research in the brain and then this aspect of the knowledge. And you know, I have mentioned the book you know, and I brought it up, but I think it, uh, in page 22, there is a little small paragraph says the distance can yield detachment as when we, coldly calculate how to outright opponent by imagining what he believes will be out next move. It enables us to exploit and use. But what is less often remarked, I'm sorry that I'm slow, 
is that the total, in total contrast, it also, I mean distancing, also gives the opposite effect by standing back from our animal immediacy of our experience, we are able to be more empathic with others who we come to see for the first time as being like ourselves. Frontal laws not only teach us to betray, but to trust. Through them, we learn to take ourselves, uh, to take others' perspectives and control our own immediate needs and desires. And I think the distancing has been, I have I've been paying attention to it in um, the importance of that, you know, in, um, in the, you know, functioning of the mind actually, how it makes it more effective. You know, you can be more like an obser observer and then, you know, I think there is a, a beautiful, uh, connection between affects and reasoning and then thinking, logic. Uh, <clears throat> and then of course, you know, the philosophy, the beliefs, you know, that influences our way of looking at. But the, the structure of our brain and our psyche, you know, all of that, these are all, you know, have been totally studied. And this book is about maybe 400 pages that I have shared with you maybe at some point or I don't remember <laughs> but uh, that's that's my take it it's a beautiful book it's a poetic it emphasizes one side it needs to be balanced that's the way I look at it thank you <clears throat> Emily's ready to say something. <clears throat> I found the book so full of um, interesting, provocative statements that I want to get an actual, I ordered a copy, but it's not here yet. Um, so I do want to go back and reread things. And Lynn, you, you live in a world with poetry, with your music, don't you? I think he's a poet, isn't he? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Not my music, other people's music, but yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was taken by uh, many, many uh, statements. Uh, and, uh, and like Emily, I've ordered the book and get here. Um, I was taken by um, one sentence. I think I commented on it even. The interior voyage overcomes loneliness by offering us a place in the universe. So I went, I went to that poem. I went to that poem I mentioned. You don't have to be good. Those who know the poem know that line. 
you don't have to, that's the first line of wild geese. Uh, but the, this is also part of it. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination. You look the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. And I think that's what he's saying. Uh, Mary Oliver said it too. They got together maybe, I don't know. But, um, and I, I totally, at some level, I totally understand it, but I don't know if I could express it, or I don't know if my frontal lobe uh, understands it at all. But somewhere uh, in my in my body, I understand this, and I'm I know I'm going to really I'm going to really enjoy the book. You know, throughout the pandemic, I I live by myself, and um, uh, I, I I kept and I've talked about this a little with Flint. Um, I. I kept sensing something was happening, something was changing, that something was here. Uh, I didn't know what it was, but this, I think this, this is gonna be very helpful. Do you mean something, something inside? Obviously, yes. Yes. Uh, may, I, may I say something, Kim? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that the, interestingly, this, McGilchrist, you know, the psych psychiatrist, the neurologist, the, you know, scientist, names his book, The Master and His Emissary. Oh. And then the master is the, <clears throat> the emotional and then the uh, affective side that we are talking about right, right here in this book. And the emissary, again, that he emphasizes the distancing so that we don't lose view of both in order to be more in the real reality or closer to the reality. Uh, I think that's what my take is. And I, so I that, that would be that would be the illness that you would deal with, right? If you could if you had if you didn't have both. I I think that that if you're talking about reality basically, getting closer to the reality. Be because it can, you know, one without the other one is not total, is not complete. I think that, that that's the role of the frontal lobe that we have become a being that, you know, can see both sides and then make it make sense of it. And, you know, the, and then uh, in the other people who are you know, they value the unconscious and the organicity and then the tendency towards goodness. <clears throat> These are other people who are, who have a deep belief in that, which again helps because otherwise we have probably no chance of surviving to this point. This uh, psychology is not a big thing in, in Japan, is it? I don't know. <laughs> That's my understanding. Trouty, do you know? Well, I know in the that. East? Well, uh, <clears throat> I had once a visitor who was a, uh, well, he, he claimed he was a Buddhist. 
He was from Sri Lanka and I invited him to my um, Indian philosophy class. And he was um, talking about that actually they use um, Buddhist teachings for helping youth, teenagers who have problems, psychological problems. Um, and he was part of some kind of a school of organization. I, I don't know, it was many years ago. I do not know how widespread uh, this is. Um, uh, Sri Lanka, um, Ceylon before, um, is a Buddhist country. I mean, it has some other religions as well, Christianity and etc. But um, so um, it was actually news uh, to me at the time. In India, per se, we have primarily uh, Neo-Buddhism, and that is more or less um, a social and political movement. I do not know whether, I, I have no information, whether they have uh, also some organizations that deal with um, psychological problems. It's quite possible, because the movement is really increasing, it's enlarging. But I do not know about Japan. Yeah, Sheila Flynn can talk a lot about Japan because she studied psychology there. And there was some process I know that that uh, she talked about where <laughs> where there's there's kind of facilitators and they ask you some questions, but they never say anything else. And you just talk to the talk to the questions. Mm. Hmm. Okay, I think our time is up. And Peg, we'll be here <laughs> next week if, if there's no tornadoes. <laughs> <laughs> but there might be one here. No, that I'm missing for it. And if we find out there wasn't a tornado, then what? Que <laughs> scandalo. Oh, but Swing I guess you, you, you go into hiding if you hear there's going to be a tornado, but that doesn't mean there'll be one, right? Yes. Okay, have a good uh, whatever. Thank, thank you, Kim. Thank you, thank, thank you. you. Good book, good book, thank you. Thank you, Mahdi, for your contribution. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful, everything is Everything is beautiful. Wow. Everything. Like yeah, this. definitely. This is just the beauty. Beauty is truth, and truth is beauty. <laughs> Isn't that the, the, the who was the the, the poet? Uh, Shelley or Keats? It was Shelley or Keats. <laughs> and that's all I know, need to know of the world. It was Keats, yeah. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Take Thank care. you so much. Bye-bye. Goodbye. <clears throat>